If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to a verse I'm going to read in a moment, it's from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 3. You'll find the book of Isaiah right in the middle of your Bible, perhaps a little bit to the right of the middle. And I'm going to be reading from the 51st chapter and the third verse. Pastor Paul is away this week. He'll be back in the pulpit next week. This week's sermon and next week are along the lines of our God is Real series that is ongoing. And then after that, Paul will plunge into an Old Testament series. It's with sadness to tell you that Madge Rudgard passed into the presence of our Lord, of her Lord, yesterday morning. But it's with joy to say that those arms are there, a shepherd not only for living, but also for dying. And so, Brian, Lord be with you as you have cared for Madge and now you you go on. Lord, give you strength and courage for each day. Thanks to many of you that have supported and cared for the Red Guards through this time and will continue to do so. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 3. says, The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. Do you know what a waste place is? And makes her wilderness like Eden. I've never been to Eden but uh, I know that it's a place where Adam and Eve thrived. Make a wilderness like Eden, her deserts like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. I get to talk about my favorite subject today, which is God. Isaiah 51.3 is a beautiful verse of hope and promise that when we find ourselves in these places of wilderness, of waste places, or we know or love somebody that it is, that it is not the end. It is not the end because God is a restoring God. I want to talk about God today and his work of merciful restoration. He can take desert and barren places and make them lush again like the Garden of Eden. What an incredible use of words to describe a human soul thriving in the presence of God to, to be in a place that is undisturbed by anything that is evil. So I'm going to address today the path out of the wilderness back to God. I believe it's a significant and relevant subject in the culture in which we live, the culture which we are immersed in, that has removed God, that has eclipsed God from their patterns of thinking, from their understanding and their perspective of the world. These thoughts were stirred in me as we were going through the book of 2 Peter, and the last number of months here in the church, Pastor Paul has led us through the book of, of Second Peter. And I've come to understand the book of 2 Peter as, as itself a work of restoration. Peter himself was a restored man. He denied his Lord three times and saw his Lord handed over to be crucified and yet was restored into the love of God through steadfast love that was a sign out of Peter's wilderness. 
And so the, the book of 2 Peter opens with those significant words that, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. And in that first chapter, he describes the concern that they not be unproductive or unfruitful, those barren places in the kingdom of God. And in the second chapter, if you recall, Peter talks about those that have just plain left the faith. They used to be with you. They're not with you anymore. They've said, goodbye, I'm out of here. And in the third chapter, he talks and deals with the, the thing that many people are finding just too much to believe, that the Lord himself would appear, setting aside all that we understand about the world itself and all of its natural causes and all of the elements of nature and set it all aside and appear in all of his glory and might. And there are those that are finding that incredulous to even think about. And so Peter is working as a pastor to restore God's people to God. Mercifully, God has put ever-present signs in those wildernesses that point us back to the fountainhead. As Laurie read from Psalm 37, there is a fountainhead in the wilderness with springs and it gives life to God's people. But we need to know the signs back from the wilderness to the fountainhead, to God himself. We need to know those signs and use those signs ourselves. Not just simply to be able to say, you know what, you should, you should probably go there. The, the, the sermon this morning isn't so you can take the link and send it to somebody you know. The signs are for us. For us to know the signs, for us to know the path into the presence of God. So that yes, then we can talk about signs from the wilderness. But it's because we're familiar with them. It's because we ourselves use them back to God. Have you ever stubbornly resolved to be on a certain path that you know probably isn't the best, but you, you just you feel the stubbornness inside and your, your heels are dug in on something. In fact, your heels might be dug in on something right now. But you know that, that it's probably not the place of thriving and yet it's the path you want. And sometimes we find ourselves, even as God's people, in those places. Pride can do it. Anger can do it. The love of pleasure can do it. Deep sorrow can do it. I've been thinking, having heard and listened to the story of the prodigal son read recently, of Jesus tells the story of the son who, who leaves. And what struck me in that particular hearing and reading in the prodigal son is his determination to never come back. He didn't say, well, I'm going to be gone for a month, Dad. I'm going to be gone for a year or maybe a year or two and we'll, we'll, we'll see you soon. He, he was resolved. Goodbye. And I am never coming back. That's quite a place for the soul. But he did come back. He was restored to his father. The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, 
Her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. The word Zion, do you know what it means? I always forget. I have to look it up every time. The word Zion is used through the scripture to speak of the people of God. It originally, in a literal Hebrew, it simply means a fortress. And it was the name of the city that King David originally took over from the Jebusites and was called Jerusalem. It eventually simply in the prophetic language, in the poetic language of God's God's people came to be taken simply for the people of God. So the word Zion, if you read the word Zion, it simply means the people of God. That's why Peter can say in the New Testament, I have laid a stone in Zion. Not in Jerusalem. He's laid the stone in Zion, which is in the people of God. That's what the word Zion means. And the, the prophetic metaphor in this verse in Isaiah of blossoming in the wilderness, of making your, your barren places like Eden, comes from the rich history of God's people when God saved them with water, water that came out of a rock in the wilderness. And so these become rich ways that the, the poets and the prophets of God's people continue to minister to God's people through the ages is to take stuff that was from their own history, stuff that was in their own imagination, and use it to address their spiritual need and talk about the God that they worshipped. This God is a God who gives water in the wilderness. And so this promise now coming from the prophet is not for people who live in a literal wilderness, not for people who are wandering far from from inhabited places, but it is for the people of God when they themselves are the wilderness. God comforts Zion. He makes Zion like the Garden of Eden. They are the wilderness. Zion is the barren place. And God comforts them. He comforts them when our hearts are barren, struggling with unbelief, struggling with disappointment, aware and conscious of separation from God's living presence. And so this is the main point that I'd like to get across today, is that God is a God of restoration, that God restores his people, and he restores them, he restores Zion from the barren wilderness with merciful and ever-present signs. Do you know the signs? Do you know the path? God's people need to know the signs and they need to know the path back to God. And they show a path to that living fountain of God's presence. Let me describe the wilderness. The things that are very common to human experience. I know all of these things in my own personal life. I'm going to use three words to describe the wilderness that I get from Jesus' parable of the soils from Luke chapter 8, the parable of the four different soils or the, the, the sowing of the, the seed. And the three words are this, agnostic, helpless, and despairing. Agnostic, helpless, and despairing. A description of three different kinds of barren places that are described in this parable. First of all, agnostic is when the 
seed of faith falls on a rocky place and it's stolen by the birds. And that's what sometimes people feel like. You know, I, my, it, it feels like it's, it, it, I've just been stripped <laughs> of what I believe. You have believed, but now you're just not sure if it's all true. You're at a war, a spiritual warfare over your own soul of whether all of the things that God says about himself and his people is actually true. And you're a bit incredulous when Christians believe all that the Bible says. All that the Bible says about God and his past and his present and his future work. You live in the book of Ecclesiastes where you just, you just, it just seems like it's whatever you do, wherever you go, it's just all vanity. And the materialistic worldview seems appealing. Can't know anything outside of what I can see. That's a wilderness that God restores his people from with signs and paths. The second one is helpless, is when the seed of faith is choked by the cares and the desires for riches and pleasure. You're sitting in church, but what you're really thinking about is, how am I going to be able to afford that thing? How can I, let's see, if I sell this and I get that, maybe I can, maybe I can do it. And you feel helpless. It might not be money, it could be pleasure. But you just feel like the world has its hooks in you. And you're at its mercy because you want something. I believe that our youth in these last year and a half have really been affected by this in a dramatic and tragic way of simply wanting things. People have been talking about the end of the world all over the place. Even Christians are guilty of this, saying, well, surely it's the end. I don't know how as Christians we can speak to God about the end with the word surely. Yes, the end will come. Surely it will come. But consider how it affects youth. Consider how it affects when it lands on the ears of, of, of people who haven't experienced very much and very much so want to experience so much of, of the things that are in the world. And so they've gone crazy just trying to do everything that they can in the shortest amount of time that they believe that they have in order just to experience it. And it's caused, had disastrous consequences with our youth. But it's the feeling like Achan going into Jericho when Jericho fell. And they were told not to touch any of the devoted things. And Achan saw a gold brick. And the hooks got on his heart. And he couldn't resist. And he took it, much to the harm of his own people. The third word is despairing. This also is a wilderness that God restores us from. Despairing is when the seed of faith withers from the hot sun of suffering. You're discouraged. And like many saints of old, you wonder why God isn't there for you when you most need him. And the suffering takes its toil on you, on your sorrow, and on your faith. And you become Zion in need of restoration. 
You wonder why God isn't there when you most need him. You feel like perhaps like the Apostle Paul who asked the Lord many times, at least three times, Lord, please take it away. Please take it away. Please take it away. And it seemed like if the Lord was speaking at all, he was saying, no. Those are wildernesses that God restores us from in merciful ways. The signs. There are signs in the wilderness. And the thing about signs, though, is that we tend to ignore them until we're lost and we really need them. Have you ever been lost? <clears throat> I grew up in the prairies, and there weren't enough trees to get lost anywhere. And, but I was on Quadra Island once last year, and I dropped a carload of people off at the camp for a retreat. And I was just a chauffeur, so I had the day. And I went, and I just found this trailhead. And I, I didn't have anything with me. No water, no... I don't know how to use a compass anyway. But didn't have anything with me and just headed off. And then as, as the trail got thinner, I found a, a, I saw a rock that I wanted to, to get to and look out. So I just beat a path through. And I couldn't find the trail when I came back. <laughs> uh, and I hadn't told anybody where I'd gone, where I was going. Didn't have a phone with me. And I, I, it, I just had that moment. I knew I'd get out, but I, I just had a taste of it. Of, oh, this, boy, would it ever be awful to actually be lost. And you know what? I, I started to look for stuff. I, I was scrounging in my eyesight for anything that would be a clue to the way back. But we tend not to see signs unless we're, we, we, we need them. We, we ignore signs. When was the last time you read the sign, Welcome to Parksville? Did you know they changed it last year? It says, Welcome to Hicksville. No, they didn't. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. They didn't, but you haven't read it in a long time. We have signs covering our every door that we go through now to get into any place of business, and including the church through the last year. I remember last fall when we were inviting people in, I said, could we please put one big sign over everything else that says, welcome? <laughs> but you ignore signs until you need them. But there is no wilderness that is so barren or so far away so as to be without signs to the way back. But seeing them often requires a crisis of lostness. A crisis of lostness. They aren't pleasant, but they wake us up. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 can say, before I was afflicted, I went astray. In other words, he's describing a time in his life when he was astray. He was in a wilderness. He was in some place until affliction came along. And he was looking for the sign. Same with the prodigal. There came a point in the prodigal's life where in his resolve to stay away, God in his mercy brought him a crisis of lostness. And from the mud of a pigsty, he looked up and he saw the sign. A sign in his wilderness. That sign said, steadfast love. There are indeed many signs, but I believe that there is one great sign to rule them all that we need to know that we need to be able to see, that we need, we need to be able to understand that this is how we find our way back from all of these different places of wilderness. And it is a lifting of our eyes to the most basic of biblical truth. 
And the most basic summation of all biblical truth is simply this, is that a God is real. That God is real. And that is the, 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 the sign that God gives us, no matter how barren the place, no matter how vast the wilderness, no matter how resolved we have been to be there in the past, no matter how perplexed we are about the circumstances that we were in, the beginning of the inkling of the path back that gives us a a toehold in the slimy mud that our feet are in is this concept, this idea that God mercifully puts in front of us that says, I am real. Everything else is by implication. Everything else flows from that fountainhead. I know this sign because I use it. It's not theoretical for me. It's not something I say, well, you should, you should probably think this way or that way or perhaps this would help. It's a, it's a sign that I use. I, I, I live with it. I put my feet on the floor in the morning and I say, this is how everything begins. God is real. Everything flows from that. I have come to many barren places in my life, times of crisis. I say sometimes that I don't believe anything that I haven't doubted thoroughly. The crisis of meaninglessness, crisis of vanity, crisis of cynicism, discouragement, failure, betrayal. And I've lifted my face to heaven and by God's mercy in the wilderness, I see the sign that says simply this, I am real. God is real. And God puts that, that sign, that, that basic beginning of the path back in so many places, so mercifully that, it, that, it, that it's always there. It's, it's internal and it's also external. There are so many internal ways that God shows us this sign about the, the, the longing for meaning and, and justice and beauty, that there has to be something more out there. It can't just all exist for nothing. There has to be some purpose somewhere. It begins. That path back begins with a sign that says God is real. And it puts us on the path. The signs are also often externally, external. There are so many different ways that God displays his might and his beauty and his design where it it, it stops us in our tracks and we go, wow, there's just no other explanation for this. How, How does one realistically, rationally explain these things that I am able to explore with the mind that God has given me and see and understand with the mind that he's given me? It could be something as simple as seeing the the northern lights as we're supposed to see them well apparently in these next few weeks with explosions on the sun. Or it could be going to your doctor and him describing to you how your eye works or how your back works or how your immune system works. You, You name it. And all of it has God's glory all over it. And it is the basic sign in our wildernesses, that I am really. See, this is the necessary sign to find the path back because if God is real, and that's the great question of our wilderness, and it's, it's okay to ask that question. In fact, it's the most important question to ask, God, are you real? Don't be embarrassed to ask it. 
I ask it all the time. God, really? Is it all real? Because if you aren't real, then absolutely nothing works. But if God is real, then the love of God is real. Which so many people doubt. If God is real, then the power of God is real. Who can possibly limit a God, a living God, if he is actually real? Who can say what he can and cannot do? Who can say that that's that's too much to believe in, that's too much to expect if God is real? But remember that the God who is real is not the God of your imagination. God is not as you, as you imagine him. God is as he is. And that's sometimes a part of our crisis, is that we, we're, we're, our, our faith and we're laying hold of a God who actually isn't real. It's like having a false bank account. Say someone told you you had a million dollars in your savings account and you went out believing that you did. As many people go out into the world believing in a God that they've learned it somehow, they've, they've got it in their head. They, maybe they've even learned it in church that God would never want anybody to be unhappy, that God would never punish sin. But it's a God of their imagination. And just like the crisis of spending a million dollars when you don't have it, it's going to lead to a time in your life where you go, this doesn't work. It's the same, the same is true in faith. God is real. But the God who is real is the God of the Bible. And so it involves a reorientation of our, of our submission to the God who is real and what he says about himself who is real. There are many voices in our world, many voices and many, a lot of different signs saying, go this way, go that way. You'll find meaning here. And so it's, it's a question that we all have to wrestle with. What voice really makes sense of the world? If you want to really be incredulous, start looking at some of the explanations for the world. <laughs> you want to really be stunned by what people believe? Don't read the Bible. Read culture about what people think where real meaning is really found. Who truly loves me? Where is steadfast love really found? Where can I actually be accepted for who I am? Where can I actually thrive in my heart, in my mind, in my soul? My wife and I were approaching a restaurant a few weeks back, and as we were outside the restaurant, still parking the car, there was little sandwich board signs, and on them had handwritten signs that says, Be kind. And you know what that's like? The signs like that are, are all over the place now. And I thought, okay, well, here it begins in... in the worldly idea of how to thrive. You put up signs that says, be kind. And I said to her, and I, I thought to myself, Lord, if we ever, as a church, get to the place where we put a sign on our door that says, be kind, and I think we've ceased to become the church of Jesus Christ. 
if that's our path of thriving together with one another. And there are all kinds of tribalism that are out there right now. But the path that unites us, the path that, that brings us into a place of thriving is this, is that God is real. And that's the sign actually that we put all over the place on our, on our slides. Uh, that's what you'll see here. That's the sign you'll see that God is real. And there are many signs that follow that, that, that I have also been so thankful for. Signs towards purpose and treasure and steadfast love. The path back, the path back out of the wilderness is, as I have said, it's a path back to God. That is so important to understand. It's not a path back to the church. It's not a path back to a certain lifestyle. It's a path back to God. I remember years ago, decades ago, seeing a, that's how far I have to go back when I last watched television. I saw a commercial on television. It was a good one because I can still remember it. It was by the Roman Catholic Church and it was entitled Welcome Back. It was brilliant. It was a very, very good marketing campaign ad. And it appealed to people's sense of history, to their sense of the sacred place, to their sense of living a, a right lifestyle and having good families and, and to, to the church itself. But what it lacked in my memory is it lacked any mention of God. See, the path back isn't a return to church. The path back isn't a return to a certain lifestyle. Those are things that flow from the fountain. <laughs> and we need to be restored to the fountain. To restore somebody to church makes them religious. To restore somebody to a certain lifestyle makes them a Pharisee. Those are things about how to worship and how to live our lives that flow from the fountain. But the path back leads to the fountain, which is very significant because to the fountain, that path leads to God himself. And that's why 2 Peter opens with that so incredibly helpful verses of God has given us everything we need, everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. I received a call a few weeks back from a woman who was suffering immensely from her cancer and was in need of care, reaching that season of life where the care at home really wasn't possible for her anymore and talking to her about a place where she could go, a place in, in hospice, a palliative where, where she could be cared for. And she called me one day to my surprise and she said to me, Pastor Barry, she said, I'm in the room today. But she said, I forgot my Bible at home. Would you be willing to bring me a Bible? And so I, I left immediately. I got on my two wheels and I took her a Bible. And as I entered the room, you know, some places you go into the room and you read the Bible for people. Some places, other places you go into the room and you have the Bible read for you. <laughs> This was the latter. Such a blessing. And I walked into the room. She literally put out her arms for, not for me, but for the Bible as I walked into the room. And she opened it to Psalm 42. And she read aloud to me these words and she said, Oh, Pastor, I love these words. 
It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams. So my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That had been her life. And now it was her end to appear before the living God. It is a path into the presence of God that we must know. It is a path to true thriving. I've used that word a few times. Do you know what I mean by it? Thriving. I've talked about when we're stubbornly on paths and we have this instinct that it's probably not the path of thriving. This is what I mean. And this really is what unites us. You have peace instead of anxiety. You have an identity that is strong and you're not striving to gain acceptance with others. You have contentment even when you have little. And you have intimacy with those that you most love and care for. That is what thriving looks like. And it comes from knowing the signs out of all the wilderness places that we can know and finding our way back to the fountainhead and living in the stream that flows from that fountain. And if we know how to travel it, if we know the signs, then we can also commend the signs. It affects our conversations with others. It affects the way that we speak with loved ones and with unbelievers. If they can't see the sign that God is real, then they can never understand or find the stream or the path of Christian life, experience, and living. See, we can't convert people to our stream. They themselves must find the fountainhead of that stream, which is God himself, and made to be for us living water through Jesus, as Jesus at the, with the Samaritan woman at the well and at the feast would stand up and say, I am living water. Those who drink from me will thirst no more. So if someone presses me on why I live in the stream that I'm in, and we have so many conversations going on in our culture right now, and it's important to know how to engage in those conversations as a Christian. If someone presses me and I understand that in terms of knowing and their, their, their perspective of the world and having God in their perspective, they're in a wilderness. And so I, I, I press the first sign. Why do you believe that? Why do you think that's true? My answer is because God is real because God is real. And, and unless you can get to that basic, fundamental acceptance, do you see the signs that God is real? Unless you can get to those basic things, you can never get into the stream that Christians live and thrive in. Let's pray together. I'm going to use some scripture verses to, to pray through today and take a few moments in prayer and reflection as we prepare for the Lord's table. And would ask, please, if you would, as the songs are sung, you won't see the lyrics for the song on the screen. What you'll see are scripture verses that have to do with the theme of the morning and, and of the sermon. And would you please, just where you are in quiet reflection, use those verses to pray. 
Use those verses to give you a vocabulary to talk to the Lord, to say, Lord, forgive me, to say, Lord, help me, to say, thank you, Lord, for the things that you promise to us and bless us with. And then Pastor Andrew will come uh, and lead us at the Lord's table. The first verse is this from Psalm 51. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Oh Lord, forgive us for the paths that we find and our need to be restored. I pray that you would restore joy to us and that it would come through your salvation. If there is anything unwilling in us, Lord, we pray that your grace would grant us a willing spirit.